Hello. Hello. Welcome to Infinite Cast Part 26. Mm. Part 26. So we've been doing this for uh, half a year. Oh, Jesus. Six (laughs) months. Uh, When did we start this? I guess in September? Is that six months ago? Yeah. October? No, no, no. September? Uh, And people have only gotten mad about Infinite Jest twice since then. So we're on a basically like quarterly Infinite Jest madness. I bet we're due for something new pretty soon. I saw a few one-off jokes about uh, using the old Infinite Jest joke about, you know, Mm -hmm. um, if if all he got in his house is a, a mattress on a floor and a copy of Infinite Jest, ladies, either do or don't fuck him. I don't really care. (laughs) <laughs> that's a good that's a good punchline to that. uh i thank you i just made that up i thought you I, made that up yeah that oh, was that's just very now. funny that's very funny chris oh thank you, you. got good jokes this week <laughs> yeah i I'm, thought that was very funny i'm glad that it gets reappraised when, it, you when you find out it's an original that's funny. well i was trying to recall what the fucking joke was but i couldn't even remember what the person <laughs> put on twitter because it does because i it doesn't matter and i don't care <laughs> <laughs> that's a funny button for uh anything that's like ladies if if the guy uh yeah. on, you know only talks about uh yeah. uh robert bolaño's two two six 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 uh i don't know just have a good time yeah, have a good time yeah just i don't know just do do whatever you want to do yeah <laughs> ladies if he's wearing a backward it's arizona diamondbacks cap and uh is only interested in the early films of Godard. Oh, whatever. Yeah, it's fine. Seems seems interesting. I saw a a tweet. My favorite style of tweet right now is when you think it's going to be a joke and it isn't. Yes. Like what I saw someone being like, uh, I got ghosted by a uh, my best one of my best friends like a year ago, mm-hmm. and I, like I was pe- expecting to see something, uh, uh, yeah, a know, punchline to it, tart and funny, and it's, it was just like, man, that shit broke my heart. I still think <laughs> about them all the time. <laughs> I was like, damn, oh, damn. That's 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 real. Yes. <laughs> I just thought they were going to be like, you know, yeah. something stupid. Um, yeah, it's always a uh, it's always funny when it's a surprise earnestness. Yeah. All right, this is usually more than we talk up I front. Know, so, um, shall we get into the, Let's the episode? Go. Let's go. Here we go. Uh, Ennett House Drug and Alcohol Recovery House is the sixth of seven exterior units on the grounds of an Enfield Marine Public Health Hospital complex that. From the height of an asks me uh, twenty one hundred industrial displacement fan or Enfield Tennis Academy's hilltop resembles seven moons orbiting a dead planet. <laughs> the hospital building itself, a VA facility of iron-colored brick and steep slate roofs, is closed and cordoned. Bright pine boards nailed across every possible access and aperture, with really stern government signs about trespassing. Enfield Marine was built during either World War II or Korea when there were ample casualties and much convalescence. (laughs) About the only people who used the Enfield Marine complex in a VA-related way now seem to be wild-eyed old Vietnam veterans in fatigue jackets de-sleeved to make vests or else drastically old Korea vets who are now senile or terminally alcoholic or both. The hospital building itself, stripped of equipment and copper wire, defunct, Enfield Marine stays solvent by maintaining several small, small, slur, small, I can't speak, several smaller buildings on the complex's grounds, buildings the size of like prosperous homes, which used to house VA doctors and support staff, 
and leasing them to different state-related health agencies and services. Each building has a unit number that increases with the unit's distance from the defunct hospital and with its proximity along a rutted cement roadlet that extends back from the hospital's parking lot to a steep ravine that overlooks a particularly unpleasant part of Brighton, Massachusetts, Commonwealth Avenue, and its Green Line train tracks. Unit number one, right by the lot in the hospital's afternoon shadow, is leased by some agency that seems to employ only guys who wear turtlenecks. <laughs> the place counsels wild-eyed Vietnam vets for certain very delayed stress disorders and dispenses various pacifying medications. Unit number two, right next door, is a methadone clinic overseen by the same Massachusetts Division of Substance Abuse Services that licenses Ennett House. Customers for the services of units number one and number two arrive around sunup and form long lines. The customers for unit one tend to congregate in like-minded groups of three or four and gesture a lot and look wild-eyed and generally pissed off in some broad geopolitical way. <laughs> the customers for the methadone clinic tend to arrive looking even angrier as a rule and their early morning eyes tend to bulge and flutter like the eyes of the choked but they do not congregate, rather stand or lean along number two's long walkways railing, arms crossed, alone, brooding, solo acts, standoffish. Fifty or sixty people all managing to form a line on a narrow walkway, waiting for the same small building to unlock its narrow front door, and yet still managing to appear alone and standoffish, <laughs> is a strange sight. And if Don Gately had ever once seen a ballet, he would, as an Ennett House resident, from his sun-up smoking station on the fire escape outside the five-man bedroom upstairs, have seen the movements and postures necessary to maintain this isolation in union as balletic. <laughs> the other big difference between units number one and number two is that the customers of number two leave the building deeply changed, their eyes not only back in their heads, but peaceful, if a bit glazed, but anyway, in general, just way better put, to way better put together than when they arrived, while number one's wild-eyed patrons tend to exit number one looking even more stressed and historically aggrieved than when they went in. <laughs> When Don Gately was in the very early part of his Ennett House residency, he almost got discharged for teaming up with a bad news me methadrine addict from New Bedford and sneaking out after curfew across the EMPHH complex in the middle of the night to attach a big sign on the narrow front door of number unit number two's methadone clinic. The sign said, closed until further notice by order Commonwealth of Massachusetts. The first staffer at the methadone clinic doesn't get there to open up until around 0800 hours, and yet it's been mentioned how number two's customers always begin to show up with twisting hands and bulging eyes at, like, dawn to wait. And Gately and the speed freak from New Bedford had never seen anything like the psychic crises and near riot amongst these <laughs> semi-ex junkies. Pallid, blade-slender, chain-smoking homosexuals and bearded bruiser types in leather berets, women with mohawks and multiple sticks of gum in, 
upscale trust fund fritterers with shiny cars and computerized jewelry who arrived as they've been doing like hyper-conditioned rats for years, many of them, arrived at sunup with their eyes protruding and with Kleenexes at their noses and scratching their arms. This is a very mean prank, Don Gately. Very mean. And standing on first one foot and then the other, doing basically everything but truly congregating, wild for chemical relief, ready to stand in the cold exhaling steam for hours for that relief, who'd arrived with the sun and now seemed to be informed that the Commonwealth of Massachusetts was suddenly going to withdraw the prospect of that relief until, and this is what really seemed to drive them right over the edge out there in the lot, until further notice. (laughs) Ape shit has rarely enjoyed so literal a denotation. At the sound of the first window pane breaking and the sight of an old blown-out whore trying to hit a leather-vested biker with an old pre-metric grass grows by inches but it dies by feet sign from number two's <laughs> clinic's pathetic front lawn, the methadrine addict began laughing so hard that she dropped the binoculars from the Ennett house <laughs> upstairs fire escape where they were watching at like 0630H and the binoculars fell and hit the roof of one of the Ennett House counselor's cars right below in the little roadlet with a ringing clunk just as he was pulling in. The counselor, his name was Calvin Thrust and he was <laughs> he was Great four name. years sober and a former NYC porn actor who'd gone through the house himself and now took absolutely zero in terms of shit from any of the residents. Ah, oh, Calvin Thrust. And that his and his pride and joy was his customized vet and the binoculars made rather a nasty dent and plus, they were the house manager's amateur ornithology binoculars and had borrowed, been borrowed out of the back office without explicit permission. And the long fall and impact didn't do them a bit of good, to say the least. And Gately and the methadrine addict got pinched and put on full house restriction and very nearly kicked out. The addict from New Bedford picked up the aminating needle a couple weeks after that anyway and was discovered by a night staffer simultaneously playing air guitar and polishing the lids of all the donated canned goods in the (laughs) house pantry way after lights out, stark naked and sheened with meth sweat. And after the formality of a urine, she was given the old, that's capital U urine, uh, she was given the old administrative boot. Uh, over a quarter of incoming Ennett House residents get ch- discharged for a dirty urine within their first 30 days. And mm. it's the same at all other Boston halfway houses. And the girl ended up back in New Bedford and then within like three hours of hitting the streets, got picked up by New Bedford's finest on an old default warrant and sent to Framingham Women's for a one to two bit and got found one morning in her bunk with a kitchen rig shiv protruding from her privates and another in her neck and a thoroughly eliminated personal map. And Gately's individual counselor, Jean M., brought Gately the news and invited him to see the methadrine addict's demise as a clear case of there before the grace of God goeth D.W. Gately. Unit number three (laughs) across the road lit from number two is unoccupied but getting reconditioned for lease. It's not boarded up and the Enfield Marine Maintenance guys go in there a couple days a week with tools and power cords and make a god-awful racket. Pat Montesian has not yet been able to find out what sort of group misfortune number three will be devoted to servicing. Pat Montesian is, remember, she was the one who was listening to all those people complain about farts and pudding. She's a, a house staff member. Okay. Oh, yes. Was she? Is she the 
person who is in, in listening listening on the uh, other end of all those all the all itemized those complaints. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll see more of her. Unit number four. Is like their secretary or something? Yeah, kind of like the house mom. Uh, unit number four, more or less equidistant from both the hospital parking lot and the steep ravine, is a repository for Alzheimer's patients with VA pensions. Number four's residents wear jammies 24-7, the diapers underneath, giving them a lumpy and toddlerish aspect. The patients are frequently visible at number four's windows, in jammies, splayed and open-mouthed, sometimes shrieking, sometimes just mutely open-mouthed, splayed across against the windows. They give everybody at Ennis House the howling fantods. Mm. One ancient retired Air Force nurse does nothing but scream help for hours at a time from a second-story window. Since the Ennett House residents are drilled in a Boston AA recovery program that places great emphasis on, quote, asking for help, unquote, the retired shrieking Air Force nurse is the object of a certain grim amusement sometimes. Not six weeks ago, a huge stolen help wanted sign was found attached to number four siding right below this retired shrieking nurse's window. And number four's director was less than amused and demanded that Pat Montesian determine and punish the Ennett House residents responsible. And Pat had delegated the investigation to Don Gately. And though Gately had a pretty good idea who the perps were, he didn't have the heart to really press and kick ass over something so much like what he'd done himself when new and cynical. And so the whole thing pretty much blew over. Do we have any sense of how long Don has been at this place? Um, I would have to look it up okay. a little, a little while, okay. like a few months. Okay. You do. I'm now I'm even trying to remember how long the stint at the house is. It, you might do three months there and then you can do staff for like a year and then they might, you might have to leave. Okay. I'll look it up though to confirm. Uh, unit number five, Kitty Corner across the little street from Ennett House is for catatonics and various vegetable-ish, fetal-positioned mental patients subcontracted to a Commonwealth outreach agency by overcrowded LTIs. Unit number five is referred to for reasons Gately's never been able to pinpoint as the shed. <laughs> this takes us to endnote number 67. Oh boy, uh-oh, this is a long one. A couple of the Enfield Marine Public Health Hospital security officers know ETA's Hal Incandenza from having met his brother Mario when James O. Incandenza had hired the officers as lineless, figurant, background extra cops for both dial C for concupiscence <laughs> and three cheers for cause and effect. If you remember those <laughs> yes, from the of filmography. Course, of course. The EM officers are sometimes down in the Unexamined Life Tavern on blind, bounce, blind Bouncer Nights when Hal is in there with, like, Axford. Hal hitting the life quite a bit less frequency, frequently than Axford and Struck and Trolch, who rarely miss a Bring Your Braille ID theme night at the Unexamined Life, and seem to be able to function during AM drills even after several parasoled mudslides or the house specialty blue flame cognac based things you have to blow out before sipping from their huge blue rimmed snifters. I would like one of those. Mm-hmm. The EM cops are both young, dim, big, good, regular, blue, literally, collar Boston guys. High school tackles now going soft. Their jowls razor burned and purpling with gin. And they'll sometimes regale the ETAs W slash R slash T, some of the more colorful EM specimens they're paid to keep secure. 
there's something a little compulsive about the cop's particular interest in number five chronic catatonics, especially. The EM cops call unit number five the shed, they say, because its residents don't seem housed there so much as more like stored there. Mm. The EM cops pronounce stored steward. Steward. It's like like they just got them stored up there. It's like they got them stored up there. The chronic catatonics themselves, they refer to as objet darts, which is something else Don G over in number six has never understood. (laughs) Objet darts. They got a bunch of objet arts. Uh, objet arts. Da- I can't even do it. Imagine dots. doing objet dots. They got a bunch of objet dots. Do it over there. Do it in the shed. Do it in the shed. Bunch of objet. Bunch of objet dots. I cannot imagine anybody actually saying objet dart in a Bostonian accent. It's spelled in the book, I should say, as O B J A Y D A R T S. Objet darts. Objet darts. Uh. Over mudslides, they'll often give little thumbnail anecdotes about various of the shed's objet darts. And one of the reasons why they regale the ETAs only when Hal's down there at the unexamined life is that Hal is the only ETA who seems truly interested, which is the sort of thing your veteran off-duty cop can always sense. Uh, E.g., one of the objet darts they're into is the lady who sits very still with her eyes closed. The cops explain that the lady is not catatonic in the strict sense of catatonic, which is, but rather a DP, which is mental health facility slang for debilitatingly phobic. Her deal is apparently that she's almost psychotically terrified of the possibility that she might be either blind or paralyzed or both. So e.g. she keeps her eyes shut tight 24-7-365 out of the reasoning that as long as she keeps her eyes shut tight, she can find hope in the possibility that if she was to open them, she'd be able to see, they say. Very existential. But that if she were ever to actually open her eyes and actually not be able to see, she reasons, she's lost that precious, like, margin of hope that she's maybe not blind. (laughs) Then they run her through her similar reasoning behind sitting absolutely motionless out of a phobia of being paralyzed. Uh, Double bind, right? Yep. Uh, Literally. After each anecdote tale, like they've got like an anecdote routine, the EM cops, the shorter EM security officer always uses his tongue to manipulate the little green parasol from one side of his mouth to the other (laughs) as he holds his snifter tight in both hands and makes his jowls accordionize as he nods and posits that the terrifying thing is that the common unifying symptom of most of the shed's objet darts is a terror so terrifying it makes the object of the terror come true somehow. Mm. Which observation always makes both of the big, dim, working men shiver, an identical and kind of almost delicious-looking shiver, pushing their hats back and shaking their heads at their glasses as Hal blows out the fire of the second blue flame they've bought him, making a wish before he blows. <sighs> good end note. Well, yeah, it's a very good end note. Yeah. Object dart. Object darts. That that fear, so fear, the blind fearness is like, I don't know, that seems like a, like a mid-century, like a Camus or something. Yeah, bit. yeah. Well, it reminds me of um, the, the guy, the paranoid schizophrenic who's terrified. Uh, he, he thinks that uh, they're going to restrain him and inject uh, dye, oh, radioactive yeah, 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 dye yeah. into his brain. And then they do exactly that. Yes. Oh, where am I? What has happened? The shed, the shed, the shed. Where's the shed? The shed? Where's Sorry. the shed? 
This is the first time you ever lost your place. There we go. The shed. It is understandably a pretty quiet place, but in nice weather, when it's more portable inmates are carried out and placed in the front lawn to take the air, standing there propped up and staring, they present a tableau it took Gately some time to get used to. (laughs) A couple newer residents got discharged late in Gately's treatment for tossing firecrackers into the crowd of catatonics on the lawn to see if they could get them to jump around or display affect. On warm nights, one long-limbed, bespectacled lady who seems more autistic than catatonic tends to wander out of the shed, wrapped in a bedsheet, and lay her hands on the thin, shiny bark of a silver maple in number five's lawn, stands there touching the tree until she's missed at bed check and, re- and retrieved. And since Gately graduated treatment and took the offer of a live-in staffer's job at Ennett House, he sometimes wakes up in his staff cellar bedroom down by the payphone and tonic machine and looks out the sooty ground-level window by his bed and watches the catatonic touching the tree in her sheet and glasses, illuminated by Comav's neon or the weird sodium light that spills from the snooty tennis prep school overhead on its hill. (laughs) He'll watch her standing there and feel an odd, chilled empathy he tries not to associate with watching his mother pass out on some piece of living room chintz. (sighs) This this chapter is bumming me out. I know. Unit number six, right up against the ravine, on the end of the rutted roads east side is Ennett House Drug and Recovery. <laughs> I can't feel Ennett <laughs> House Drug and, and Alcohol Reco- Recovery, Recovery House. House. I love the the, the double <laughs> house. It's good. Three stories of whitewashed New England brick with the brick showing in patches through the whitewash. A mansard roof that sheds green shingles. A scabrous fire escape at each upper window. And a back door no resident is allowed to use and a front office around on the south side with huge protruding bay windows that yield a view of ravine weeds and the unpleasant stretch of Commonwealth Ave. This is a very particular type of North American structure that I can picture very clearly. A a New England... A New um, England former home that is now an institutional structure. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right. I, I can see it very clearly in my mind. Yeah. There's a bunch in Burlington that are kind of like that. Yeah. I think every region has its own like variation of it. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, the kind of place that like looks like it was a single family home in like 1910 and is now like three dentist's office mm-hmm. offices. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Or like a food pantry. Yeah. Know? Or something like that. You ever see like, you? I don't know, I in my volunteering, I sometimes have to like Google things. Yeah. Google map them and the image is always like that. Yes, exactly. Even, even in Brooklyn. It's so weird. Okay. Uh, the front office is the director's office and it's bay windows. The house's single attractive feature are kept spotless by whatever residents get front office windows for their weekly chore, capital C chore. Mm-hmm. The Mansard's lower slope encloses attics on both the male attics on both the male and female sides of the house. The attics are accessed from trapdoors in the ceiling of the second floor and are filled to the beams with trash bags and trunks, the unclaimed possessions of residents who've up and vanished sometime during their term. The shrubbery all around Ennett House's first story looks explosive, ballooning in certain unpruned parts, and there are candy wrappers and styrofoam cups trapped through the shrubs' green levels, and gaudy homemade curtains billow from the second story's female sides bedroom windows, which are open what seems like all year round. Unit number seven is on the west side of the street's end, 
sunk in hill shadow and teetering right on the edge of the eroding ravine that leads down to the avenue. Number seven is in bad shape, boarded up and unmaintained and deeply slumped at the red roof's middle as if shrugging its shoulders at some pointless indignity. For an Ennett House resident, entering unit number seven, which can be easily entered through the detachable pine board over an old kitchen window, is cause for immediate administrative discharge, since unit number seven is infamous for being the place where Ennett House residents who want to secretly relapse with substances sneak in and absorb substances and apply visine and chlorates and then try to get back across the street in time for 2330 curfew without getting pinched. Behind unit seven, begins far and away the biggest hill in Enfield, Massachusetts. The hillside is fenced, off-limits, densely wooded and without sanctioned path. Because the legit route involves walking north all the way up the rutted road through the parking lot, past the hospital, down the steep curved driveway to Warren Street, and all the way back south down Warren to Commonwealth, almost half of all Ennett House residents negotiate number seven's back fence and climb the hillside each morning, shortcutting their way to minimum wage temp jobs at like the Provident Nursing Home or Shuko Mist Medical Pressure Systems, etc., over the hill up com, or custodial and kitchen jobs at the Rich Tennis School for blonde, gleaming tennis kids on what used to be <laughs> I'm the really, I'm really enjoying the, the shade of, of ETA uh, from this perspective. Seen from the outside. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, because on the inside, it's just these horrible, miserable kids who are just being tortured by sports and academics. <laughs> and from the outside, they're like, ooh, well, look fancy boy. Look at this our tennis, <laughs> our academia. Is, is Too good for us drug addicts down the hill. <laughs> Uh, blonde gleaming tennis kids on what used to be the hilltop. Don Gately's been told that the school's maze of tennis courts lies now on what used to be the hill's hilltop before the academy, the academy's burly cigar chomping tennis court contractors shaved the curved top off and rolled the new top flat. The whole long, loud process sending all sorts of damaging avalanche-type debris rolling down <laughs> and all over Enfield Marines Unit Number 7, something over which you can sure bet the Enfield Marine VA administration litigated years back. And, but Gately doesn't know that ETA's balding of the hill is why Number 7 can stand empty and unrepaired. Enfield Den Tennis Ca Academy still has to pay full rent every month on what it almost buried. Uh, is that the end of the segment? That's the end of the segment. There's one I, more. Let's, is there one? There's like, one like two page thing that I feel like we might as well just get through. All right. Is yeah, that enough for yeah, today? Yeah, let's Okay. It, it's quick, I think. Six November year of the append adult under. It's just that you never know when it's going to link to a six page. I know. I, th <laughs> I think we're I think we're in safe territory. No, no, no. It's, it's good. Let's go. Uh, 1610 hours. ETA wait room. Freestyle circuits, the clank and click of various resistance systems. Lyle on the towel dispenser, conferring with an extremely moist Graham Raider. Shacked doing sit-ups, the board almost vertical, his face purple and forehead pulsing. Trolch by the squat rack, blowing his nose into a towel. <laughs> Coil doing military presses with a bare bar. Carol Spodek curling, intent on the mirror. Raider nodding as Lyle bends and leans in. Oh. Hal up on the spotter shelf in back of the incline bench in the shadow of the monster copper beach through the win west window doing single leg toe raises for the ankle. 
Ingersoll at the shoulder pole, steadily upping the weight against Lyle's advice. <laughs> again, again, that idea of going too heavy. Uh, Keith the Viking Freer, which takes us to N68. Uh, Freer's the Viking moniker is his own invention and nobody else uses it. <laughs> Instead, referring to him as just Freer and regarding it as a classic, pathetic Freer type move that he goes around just trying to get people to refer to him as the Viking. Oh, oh great. Perfect. I love that. Uh, Keith the Viking Freer and the stereo- steroidic 15 uh, year old Elliot Cornspan spotting each other on massive barbell curls next to the water cooler's bench, taking turns bellowing encouragement. Hal keeps pausing to lean down and spit into an old NASA glass on the floor by the little shelf. ETA trainer Barry Loach walking around with a clipboard he doesn't write anything down on, but watching people intently and nodding a lot. Axford with one shoe off in the corner, doing something to his bare foot. Michael Pemulus seated cross-legged on the cooler's bench just off Cornspan's left hip, doing facial facial isometrics, trying to eavesdrop on Lyle and Raider, wincing whenever Cornspan and Freer roar at each other. Three more! Get it up there! (laughs) Get that shit up there, man! (laughs) It raped your sister! It killed your fucking mother, man! Hole, 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 hole! Do it! Pemulus makes his face very long for a while and then very short and broad and then all sort of hollow and distended like one of Bacon's popes. <laughs> well, suppose, Pemulus can just make out Lyle, suppose I were to give you a key ring with 10 keys, with no, with 100 keys, and I were to tell you that one of these keys will unlock it, this door we're imagining opening in onto all you want to be as a player. How many of the keys would you be willing to try? Trolch calls over to Pemulus. Do the delint jerking off face again. (laughs) Pemulus for a second lets his mouth gape slackly and his eyes roll way up and flutters his lids, moving his fist. (laughs) Well, I'd try every darn one, Raider tells Lyle. Hull, hull, gull. Motherfucker, fucker. Pemulus's wince looks like a type of facial isometric. Do Bridget having a tantrum? Do Shacked in a stall? Pemulus makes a shush finger. Lyle never whispers, but it's just about the same. Then you are willing to make mistakes, you see? You are saying you will accept 99% error. The paralyzed perfectionist you say you are would stand there before that door, jingling the keys, afraid to try the first key. Pemulus pulls his lower lip down as far as it will go and contracts his cheek muscles. Cords stand out on Freer's neck as he screams at Cornspan. There's a little hanging mist of spittle and sweat. (laughs) Cornspan looks like he's about to have a stroke. There are 90 kilograms on the bar, which is itself 20 kilograms. One more, you fuck! Fucking take it! (laughs) Fuck me. Fuck me, you fuck! Take the pain! (laughs) Freer has one finger under the bar, barely helping. Cornspan's red face is leaping around on his skull. <laughs> Carol Spodek's smaller bar goes silently up and down. Trolch comes over and sits down and saws at the back of his neck with a towel, looking up at Cornspan. I don't think all the curls I've ever done all together add up to 110, he said. Cornspan's making sounds that don't sound like they're coming from his throat. <laughs> yes, yes, roars Freer. 
The bar crashes to the rubber floor, making pemulous wince. Every vein on Cornspan stands out and pulses. His stomach looks pregnant. He puts his hands on his thighs and leans forward, a string of something hanging from his mouth. Way to fucking take it, baby, Freer says, <laughs> going over to the box on the dispenser to get rosin for his hands, watching himself walk toward the mirror. Pemulus starts very slowly to lean over Cornspan, looking around confidentially. He gets so his face is right up near the side of Cornspan's mesomorphic head and whispers, hey, Elliot, hey. Cornspan, bent over, chest heaving, rolls his head a little his way. Pemulus whispers, pussy. <laughs> that's the section great oh boy a lot, lot of lot for just describing uh seven houses in a circle yeah there's a lot going on there uh i mean it's it's interesting that the whole setup it, it just depicts this degraded decrepit va infrastructure Mm-hmm. that no longer functioning uh, like veterans hospital surrounded by other little houses of de- that only function through like the despair that they curate uh, all, all of those grim, grim portraits uh, you know, I was thinking like no, almost my, my grandma had Alzheimer's and I don't think mm-hmm. I've been in a, a more grim area in my life than an Alzheimer's ward at a hospital. Oh yeah. I'm uh, sure. Or a uh, hospice. Um, very, very, very distressing. That is not great. Yeah. Uh, and then also, I mean, I don't know. Would you? Would it be fair to call uh, DFW one of the like foremost chroniclers of like addiction in literature of I mean, the last of his generation? It's at least? in this very specific way, right? Which yeah. is institutional. Very institutional. Like it's not. Um, you know, for example, a lot of the narratives that I've read about addiction, like more recently, is like I'm thinking of like Cat Marnell, How to Murder Your Life, or like, mm-hmm. I mean, Elizabeth Wurzel was mostly writing about antidepressants, but I'm pretty sure she had some addiction issues as well. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's kind of like the person, like the addict, as like a single alone being, yeah, and rather like, than like a cog in some machine, or just you know, a part part of like a. Com- even if they would wouldn't necessarily describe it themselves that way, but like a community. Well, you know what I was thinking of. Yeah. Uh, Brace and Liz did a great episode recently about uh, the opio- opioid mm-hmm. epidemic, and Brace spent a lot of time of that episode talking about his personal experiences in it and attended to that on Twitter. He was uh, Brace and Liz of if I don't know if anybody doesn't listen to that too of True Anon, mm-hmm. the uh, great um, True Conspiracies podcast. Uh, but Brace was was around then soliciting people's horror stories from like basic basically Ennett houses yeah, that they yeah, had yeah. been in, and he was mm-hmm. just talking about all the wild stuff that he had seen in them, and a lot of that was just reminding me of this stuff. And then I was also thinking as we were reading it that you know it's it's interesting that there would be that crossover of like David Foster Wallace talking about this stuff, and then me reading Brace talk about his experiences, and that David Foster Wallace passed really right when the opioid epidemic was like picking up yeah right 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 because that i mean i do feel like his i know he talks about like the people in, waiting in line for the methadone clinic for example and how they are a wide range of like types of people yeah. and that does include like rich people but like his vision of at least in you know in boston uh, addicts as being i think more 
Well, you know what? I'm I'm gonna take that back because even in Edit House, they're like they're tiny Yules, like the lawyer, yeah, and uh, who has been brought low by his addiction as well. But the, the yeah, something about the it being in that kind of complex, especially surrounded by other people who have essentially been mm-hmm. not completely abandoned by society, but like kind of, yes, you know what I mean? Like no, none of the people in the catatonics house, it's not like their families are able to care for them or send them yes. to someplace nicer. So like David Foster Wallace is, I mean, it's, it's very tell, you know, mm-hmm. very apt that at the bottom of the hill is this like society, this yes. basically broken society and then at the top of the hill are these these shiny folks that either are paying like an exorbitant amount uh, for education, but more importantly, mm-hmm. they're playing tennis. Imagine putting all that effort and money into, into tennis. tennis. Yeah, because it is down it's like down the hill. People are trying to survive. Versions of highly institutionalized thing uh, processes. One is the highly institutionalized process to make you like as high performing as possible. And the other is the highly institutionalized process to keep you from being as low performing as possible. Right. And he's basically saying not, not that they're the same. I don't think he's, he's pointing at, uh, you know, saying this is the same picture, but (laughs) these are the same. His point, which I think is very valid is that you can, as a person experience both things. David Foster Wallace himself was a high functioning, incredibly intelligent, uh, like te- good at tennis and math and writing addict. Mm-hmm. So like, and the point I think a lot about the, um, at the end of Jeff Tweedy's memoir yeah. near the end where he finally goes to rehab because he has a prescription painkiller addiction and he is feeling bad in like a group therapy, um, context because he it's a, he didn't go to fucking promises or whatever in Malibu. Yeah. He went to someplace kind of middle class, probably someplace in one of these, uh, formerly single-family mansions in Chicago that is now turned into a uh, a group rehab facility. Probably, I th- I think he yeah he made a point of saying that he he did not go to like a a vacation rehab not the not to disparage those necessarily yeah. either. But he the said the tell that, for those buildings is always a building that looks like it should be a family home with fire escapes put on the outside. Yes, yeah. Because correct. once it becomes institutional, it always it's like mandated to have. And then has the just like a shitty little parking lot, like yeah, right next like door to a three too. car parking lot. Yeah, a house I don't with know its own why, parking lot. Why the evocative description of that is so resonating for me? It's just yeah. like the place. Again, it's like the dentist offices or like some kind of, you know, I feel like I did like some kind of extracurricular math program that operated out of one of those a house like that uh-huh. or something. I don't know. It's it's. I vaguely remember singing singing it in my high school acapella group at a house like that. Yeah. Like, for, but that was used that was for like, like really like ra- like ex- random shit like that. Yeah, like music rehearsal spaces yeah. for the lo- local high school or yeah. something. Yeah. Um. Anyway, the the what Jeff Tweedy says is that he was in like a group therapy and he was basically feeling kind of self conscious because he he was this successful musician and he's like the things that I'm complaining about in comparison to people who have like gone to jail, had people like you know mm-hmm. murdered next to them, like have lived who grew up poor and had incredibly hard lives, and a guy in his group was just like we when you like when I feel pain, I feel pain. When you feel pain, you feel pain. That yeah. like that's still valid. I think about that. I think that's what David Foster Wallace is a little bit trying to get to here. Yeah, that there's like a, uh, I mean, that there's a a fraternity, a brotherhood of man. Yeah. I'm trying to find some of Brace's uh, um, rehab house stories. Fancy fancy tennis boy genius Hal has a weed addiction, a burgeoning weed addiction, which puts him on the exact same playing field in some ways. Yes. As uh, Kenner did. I mean, they're they're a a step away from each other. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, 
I can't. I'm not gonna be able to find any of these in now. And maybe it, right now, maybe he even deleted them. But uh, I believe one of Brace's stories is about w- watching a, a man try to saw his own leg off to like get out of some yikes uh, rehab facility. Oh my god, it's brutal. Yes. Yeah. The the pain of a uh, human experience in uh, a, a broken country. Yes. It's not good. Don't know what to do about it. Uh, seems there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. If only, if, if only, only. Uh, we had like institutions that worked or a society built on caring and compassion for our the weakest. If only. I One of the like last strangers, not last strangers I ever talked to, but February a year ago when we were in New Hampshire for uh, Chapo stuff and, and Bernie stuff, I talked to a guy who was probably in like his early 60s at karaoke and he was basically saying like he did not care about politics and he did not identify as a democrat and then his daughter became addicted to opiates and he started to like he was like looking around basically being like who's trying to help here yes and guess who's guess who cares yes daddy bernie only one person only only one guy yeah (laughs) no oh sometimes that's how it feels though yeah um I'm I'm sure that that is an experience a lot of people unfortunately have, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know, it's I, I, for this book it's it feels a little bit ahead of its time. I guess it still feels very current to me. This doesn't seem like it was from 30 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the stuff that doesn't age well is probably some stuff that would seem uh, cr- maybe more crassly sexist ho- or like homophobic or yeah. ableist in some ways, but you know. It's certainly better than an episode of Friends in that <laughs> yes. respect. Yes. <laughs> or Sex in the City. Yes. I was just watching an episode of Sex in the City and oh, the way God. that Sex she talked about trans people, I was horrified. Yes. I'm not even going to fucking repeat it. I mean, it is like a, a it is like an increasing like joke or cliche that like everybody really just got woke like 10 years ago, but it really it, there was a big sea change. You watch there. the popular media and just yeah. the, even the understanding of, of stuff like this was so unbelievably weak. Yeah. Oh, what was I? Uh, oh, I was just watching LMFAO videos. Uh-huh. Um, like like I am want to do and a video from like 2010 of LMFAO who, who just had a casual like no homo drop in it, which I really didn't think was the was the LMFAO energy. But it's also it was like. That's so. It was so pervasive, though. Pervasive then. I like. I feel like How I Met Your Mother had like Neil Patrick Harris doing no homo jokes on it in like 2011. That was very. Which is that. like a billion percent would not fly, uh, now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and would have yeah. Um. So. Uh. I mean, hell, T- Tucker Max was was uh gaining in popularity oh, at yeah. the same time. Is he that the LMFL beer in hell guy? I uh, I hope they serve beer in hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, Tucker Max, fucking, I read that. I read his free stuff in college. I read his stuff on his website in like 2009. He shares a story, which I can, it's definitely not true. Shares a, short, shares a story about setting up a hidden camera when he has anal sex with his girlfriend for the first time. Can you imagine someone yes, sharing that? You would put that in like Reddit and people would freak, freak out. out. Am I the asshole? Yeah. <laughs> am I, am I, I the asshole? I would just start submitting Tucker, Sk- Tucker Max stories to Am I the asshole? That's a good bit. That's a very good bit. <laughs> anyway, the, the bar really did. The bar is, I don't know how high it is now, but the bar used to truly be on the uh, floor. I dare you to submit an uh, Am I the asshole uh, post to um, Am I the asshole uh, written from the perspective of James and Condenza talking about educating your son. 
I am am like sixty five. Have uh, enrolled enrolled my son my my three sons. You know, M nine, M twelve, M fifteen in my highly competitive tennis academy, and then and then basically ignored them while I started my uh, budding my, experimental film career. Am I the asshole? am I the asshole? <laughs> my God. <laughs> I wonder how long it would take for somebody to get that. Uh, Federer really does look like a Swiss prince <laughs> playing tennis. Like he looks so unbelievably like European regal, noble. Yes. Yeah, very regal. He looks like he should be driving a sports car in uh, Monte Carlo with like wearing a pair of driving gloves. Yes, and a silk scarf. Yeah, and talking constantly about the titles that his family was stripped, <laughs> stripped of. Stripped of in the before the revolution, I would have been a baron. <laughs> What is Federer's background? I wait. Is he? I thought he was Swiss. Am I is wrong? He Swiss? I don't know. What's what's N- N- Nadal is Spanish. Spanish. Um, Roger Federer. Swiss. Imagine being Swiss. Yeah, imagine being Swiss. You just got a little bit of everything in you. Anyway, yeah, he's, we should, yeah, he's Swiss. We should probably uh, sign off. What an elegant place to fucking live, Switzerland. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it, it would ruin you for the uh, entire rest of the world. Like, I I like I think that, like, ugly things are beautiful, too. Like, I like to look at, like, a, a gross, like, building and be like, that's kind of neat. I feel like if you grow up in Switzerland, though, everything looks ugly. Well, uh, yeah, well, that's, so that's the thing. Imagine, like, growing up in a place like Geneva and listening to us talk, like, weirdly romantically about those shitty little houses turned into office Just buildings. Be like, like, I don't know I what do you're talking about. Every building I have ever been in... Uh, what is this? What is this? Probably exactly? just, like, like French. German. Like Every building I have ever been in uh, was built in the 16th century by a master carpenters. If, if you, uh, by any chance, accidentally get... Uh, addicted to uh, substance, uh, they take you to a beautiful castle in Lake Luzerne. Uh, <laughs> served meals every day. Uh, you beautiful are attended cheese. to by beautiful uh, French nurses. And uh, usually, uh, a few weeks of breathing uh, the crisp lake mountain air uh, cures you of addiction very I, quickly. Ah, uh, yes, I was. I went through Swiss government uh, rehab. It was the most awful experience of my life. Only. Three wheels of cheese a day and only two hours allowed on the slopes. <laughs> but sauna every evening, very nice. It's very nice. And also the government gave you 600 francs a day <laughs> for, the, for the trouble of being there. <laughs> Uh, man. If we have, I I don't even know if we have Swiss listeners. Dude, if you, if you are a Swiss listener, uh, if you're Swiss, please, please reach email out to us, us the, and tell us that we're wrong. The infinite castpod at gmail.com. Please or just, tell yeah, us about slide in our DMs. I don't please, know. Please, uh, uh, you know, alleviate us of any pretensions we have about how elegant Switzerland is, because I'm sure somebody has had a bad time there. Uh, in in the words of Caroline Calloway, uh, musing that she thinks that she's the only Cambridge grad with an OnlyFans, happy to be proven wrong. <laughs> And with that, should we? Yeah, let's sign off. We're kind of rambling. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. We'll be back a little more next week. Goodbye.